0: Welcome to Trauma Talk. This program encourages you to do a mental assessment of any trauma you have experienced and help you become proactive in your own personal healing and thereby create a better world for you and your loved ones to live and thrive in. Now, here is the host of Trauma Talk, Ezrina Rose Scott.
1: Hello everyone and thank you for tuning in to Trauma Talk. Uh, Joining me later uh, in the episode today is Dr. Owen Williamson, and he originally trained as an orthopedic surgeon in Melbourne, Australia, and he specialized in spine and trauma surgery. He joined the Department of Epidemiology and Preventative Medicine in Monash University in Australia, where he began to study the long-term effects of trauma particularly the development of chronic pain and associated mental health disorders, including anxiety, depression, and post-traumatic stress disorders. Through personal and occupational experience, Dr. Williamson also became aware of the consequences of witnessing and treating trauma amongst first responders and other healthcare professionals. Dr. Williamson migrated to Canada in 2011, and he currently is the President of Pain Medicine Physicians of BC, Head of the Section of Pain Medicine, Doctors of BC, Chair of the Academic Pain Directors of Canada, and Chair of the Ethical and Legal Issues in Pain Special Interest Group, the International Association for the Study of Pain. Dr. Williamson, thank you for joining us today. How are you?
2: I'm very well. Thank you for having me, Isrina, and hello to all our listeners.
1: Mm. So, tell me a little bit about your interest in trauma. Like, how did it begin? What, what um, drew you to trauma, or working in trauma, with trauma? Um,
2: my interest first developed when I was in my early medical years training as an orthopedic surgeon. And obviously, we're exposed to a lot of trauma uh, during our training uh, in a number of different forms. But once I uh, graduated as an orthopedic surgeon, then I became a surgeon at a level one trauma center, which is a major trauma center. And it was the major trauma center for the state of Victoria, a state in Australia that has a population of about five million people. So we were seeing major trauma arriving often via helicopter every day, and then we were seeing lesser forms of trauma coming through the emergency department. And I guess that that was my introduction uh, to the concept of of people being traumatized. And then uh, as my career developed, uh, I also trained as a spine surgeon, and during that practice really became aware of the the pains that my patients were presenting with. Uh, Approximately 15% of the patients I saw uh, had conditions that could be treated with surgery, but the other 85% had pain problems uh, that their family physicians just couldn't cope with. And during that period of time, I became interested in pain medicine. And very rapidly found that people presenting with chronic pain also have mental health disorders such as anxiety and depression. So, by treating both my spine patients and my trauma patients, I realized that a big lot of their ongoing disability following a specific traumatic event, whether it be uh, in a car accident or whether it be as a result of having to have surgery, that there were these ongoing consequences in terms of their health, and also their mental health. And uh, with time, I became interested in studying that, and then subsequently the studies have informed uh, my future practice.
1: Okay, so being exposed to that level of trauma, other people experiencing trauma and you trying to help them, how did you cope within that that environment of trauma? What What did you do to manage the effects of what... Was happening around you?
2: That's a very good question and at the time I told myself I coped with it by coping with it and the particular mechanisms I cope with it I perhaps wasn't all that aware of but and part of that was because particularly with the major traumas coming through the trauma center uh, the main way of coping with it I guess was just to be totally focused on doing the job at hand and so that in that concentrated uh, period of time, uh, one didn't have the opportunity to uh, reflect on the effect of the trauma on either the patient or the team looking after them. It was really only later that I became aware of the long-term personal consequences of treating that trauma. And then with further research, uh, have retrospectively, if you like, worked out what uh, strategies I was using to manage that and what strategies now... Uh, I would offer to other people who are trying to manage that particular circumstance.
1: Okay, and I see that with a lot of uh, healthcare professionals and first responders. uh, When there is a traumatic incident, we have to deal with what's in front of us first and foremost. So we basically kind of put aside, even suppress our inner experience of what that is to help them. Would you agree?
2: I totally agree with that. And in a way, you have to be able to do that to do the job at hand. If one gets too upset or anxious uh, whilst trying to help these people in the emergency situation, then your own performance and your ability to look after them uh, rapidly diminishes. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the uh, experiences that I had was At times when I was feeling particularly stressed and anxious, uh, making a deliberate decision to suppress those uh, reactions, particularly in front of my team members, because I realized that as the team leader, if I appeared anxious or stressed, then that would actually be amplified throughout the team. And the team would not be able to function effectively. So in those circumstances, I'm not only having to manage my own visceral reactions to what I'm doing and what I'm seeing in front of me, but also having to then manage those reactions in others around me in order to be able to uh, function effectively.
1: Mm -hmm. And did you have uh, a process after treating someone that you would like debrief or you would talk with the team and let them share their experience to, to de-stress a bit? Or what would you do immediately after helping someone through a traumatic surgery or car accident or what have you? Unfortunately, at the
2: time that uh, I first became involved in that uh, um, prof- professional endeavor, there was very little in the way of support for uh uh, either physicians or nursing staff or the allied health staff or the first responders in terms of debriefing following uh, these sort of things I mean I was brought up in the era where the physician was just supposed to uh, work and not react and uh, and at the same time we were brought up in an environment where uh, there was the environment in the workplace was not conducive to supporting the workers within that workplace. Now, I understand things have changed a lot over the last 20 or 30 years, but it was seen as a sign of weakness amongst physicians to to even acknowledge that they were uh, anxious or stressed or depressed uh, by their particular situation. So um, unfortunately for a lot of people that leads to uh, poor outcomes in terms of their own mental health. But I guess I used to employ a number of strategies. I used to talk to some of my close friends. I probably used to bore them silly on occasions because they were non-medical. Um, you know, when I was fatigued, I would treat the symptom rather than the cause, so I would sleep when I could. I would try relaxing uh, uh, things like uh, uh, exercising or listening to music or being involved in a band was a great release. And uh, I probably indulged in junk food, <laughs> no, yeah. That's one of the common ways that uh, physicians cope with stress is poor eating habits.
1: Okay, and for for the professionals that are dealing with trauma, like first responders, and if if they're not debriefing, share a few other examples of how the effects of trauma started showing up. You shared a few of yours. What else did you witness in, say, coworkers and colleagues? What are some some other things that other people can do a, a self-reflection on and say, oh, you know, I'm kind of doing these too. It, you know, do yeah. I need to look at this? <laughs> yeah, look, there's a, a lot of
2: ways that it comes out, and it depends on the, the degree of stress that somebody is put under. And, you know, at the simplest uh, level, people might just feel, anxious or stressed but then go home at the end of the day, have good coping strategies which they may or may not even recognize in themselves, talk to their friends, chill out, and then they're ready to face the day in the following day. And then there are the people who burn out as a result and they're um, really people who are overwhelmed, starting to get overwhelmed by their experiences uh, and there's this slow accumulation of of effect, and often this is manifested as losing enthusiasm for their job. Uh, it can be manifested in change in, in personal habits, whether that be uh, sleeping habits, using uh, drugs or alcohol to help manage their uh, situation. But the problem is that they can also become isolated with time, and that can lead on to greater consequences in terms of depression and and substance and alcohol abuse. And at the far end of the spectrum, uh, well, it's not the far end of the spectrum, it is a spectrum, so uh, there are people who start then developing the Uh, symptoms associated with a post-traumatic stress disorder. So now these are people who are starting to uh, be distressed by the situation. They're starting to ruminate on it. They're starting to have flashbacks to traumatic uh, uh, incidents. Uh, They're having nightmares at night. And what they're finding is that the, uh, the, the trauma that they've witnessed and the reaction they're having to it starts to become more intrusive on the other aspects of their life and again at the extremes that is associated with you know anxiety depression drug and alcohol abuse and unfortunately suicide
1: mm-hmm. so what i found is uh, and i agree there's an a uh, there's an accumulation of effects from from being exposed to trauma and when someone is in burnout or experiencing post traumatic stress disorder they actually aren't at, they don't have the awareness that um, they have changed. So sometimes it takes other people to clue them in. Would you agree that when you're in burnout or PTSD, you can't really notice it yourself or do you, or do you put it aside? or?
2: I think it's a combination of all of the above. Uh, I joked. Uh, And friends joke about me because of my previous existence as an orthopedic surgeon. And we're not regarded as particularly smart people. Um, But for me, and I think for a lot of uh, uh, people who go into medicine, at least in my day, Uh, there was a lot of we in in Australia went straight from high school into medical school then straight into residency and then straight into uh, being uh, a specialist or a consultant and in that process there was very little time for self-reflection certainly in the course of our training there was no formalized way of introducing people to uh, reflection and I think that you know, unfortunately, a lot of people never develop those skills. And the first they become aware is when their life is starting to fall off the rails in their, you know, mid 40s or 50s, at which stage they're either burnt out or, you know, they go through the so-called midlife crisis, which can be good and bad, as you know, your crisis can be leading to good things or to bad things, but depending on how you deal with it. So the thing about it is, is that where we're hoping the the education and the culture is changing is giving people skills to recognize the warning signs of burnout or PTSD or depression or anxiety so that they can actually seek help before they need it rather than not being aware until it's too late
1: right and and when it's too late is when they're suffering with anxiety depression PTSD, anger, drug, alcohol abuse, uh, suicide ideation, those are the signs that maybe something has gone too far, they've left it too late? Is Those are the main signs?
2: Yeah, no, I think that's, uh, that's correct. And I think that that's why at least uh, in the medical schools now we realize that these these signs are appearing in medical students and residents. And so now in the process of the medical education and developing curriculum, there's time put into the program where people uh, uh, learn, to learn about the, the warning signs and they learn about uh, mechanisms or techniques they can use to protect themselves uh, from these becoming uh, uh, overwhelming. And I think there's also the greater realisation that uh, amongst the more senior colleagues that really what was good for them is not good it was not actually good for them and it's certainly not good uh, for the physicians that follow us, and that we really have this uh, need to create an environment where people can express their vulnerabilities and then deal and and know that they're going to have help in dealing with these stresses that in a way are an inevitable part of their practice
1: mm-hmm. And when we're talking about healthcare professionals, we're actually talking about physicians and nurses and firefighters and police and paramedics and even psychologists and psychiatrists and counselors and and who else do you think uh, could benefit from uh, from this information? Like first responders, who else? Um,
2: well, yes, I mean everyone along that line, I guess, from first responders to Uh, the emergency department staff to the critical care staff and the operating theatre staff but really this is you know the the problems with burnout and depression and PTSD are common within the community and really one could advocate that there's more placed on education regarding these and the uh, and creating facilities for the management of these within a community and actually teaching people about this uh, early on in their life we know that for instance A lot of adverse childhood events predispose people to having these reactions later in their life. So we should be addressing those earlier as well.
1: Mm -hmm. And what I see a lot of is as long as people are still coping, they just keep doing what they're doing. It isn't until the anxiety or the distress outweighs the coping that they seek help. And one of the reasons I I like, what I like about the episode today is to educate people on what you call the warning signs, to encourage people to get help before it becomes too stressful or these coping mechanisms just really are falling apart for people.
2: Yes. So you may be interested, and I'll ask you this question as a guest, is to which group of physicians are most likely to ask for help?
1: Uh, what group of physicians are likely to ask for help? Um, yes. I'm not sure. No, the answer is psychiatrists,
2: and that's because they're dealing with this every day, and they're much more aware. And so, and because they're in a culture where there's no or or little um, stigma associated with calling for help. Uh, because they provide it and they're used to those circumstances, they're the most likely to use those resources. But what we should be really doing, and this is part of most national mental health strategies, and and it's the same for chronic pain strategies, is to reduce the stigma associated with the condition so that people are encouraged to um, seek help when they need it.
1: Yeah, I agree. There still is a stigma around uh, asking for help. So, Dr. Williamson, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, I'd really like you to talk more about uh, the strategies that we can use to to de stress and prevent um, these maladaptive coping mechanisms from taking over our lives.
2: I'm very happy to it.
1: <laughs> okay, we'll be back in a moment. Your world. Motivate, change, succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com.
0: Visit Ezrina.ca for information about counseling and body healing services. Ezrina is a master's therapeutic counselor registered with the Association of Cooperative Counseling Therapists of Canada. She has 10 years of counseling experience. She will work both in her office as well as via Skype or will travel to your area through her workshops. You can even schedule a session online. These sessions are one hour or 90 minutes long. Visit asrena.ca Again, that's Azrena.ca. asrena Rose Scott conducts several workshops every year, and she can bring them to you wherever you are. Visit asrena.ca or call 250-212-5596 for more information. Azrina is an Access Consciousness Practitioner. Her popular workshops include Access Consciousness, The Bars, as well as workshops on money, body, and relationships. Ezrina's workshops can help you get unstuck and move forward in your life. Find out more or bring a friend along. Visit Ezrina.ca for more information or call 250-212-5596.
1: Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment.
0: listening to Trauma Talk with Ezrina Rose Scott. To reach our program today, you may call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. If you'd rather send an email, you can send it to Ezrina at Esrena.ca. Now, let's return to Trauma Talk.
1: So, Dr. Williamson, you uh, experienced a traumatic incident. Uh, Tell us about that. Um, The words I remember you saying is being buried alive.
2: Yes, uh, that was in fact true. Um, The circumstances were that uh, um, I'm a very uh, keen skier and with a bunch of friends every year ski in the backcountry. And as we're skiing down a steep slope, on uh, moving snow and amongst dense trees, uh, I had an equipment failure so that I came out of my bindings. One of the problems in when skiing in, in trees, particularly fir trees, is that there's a big hole that develops underneath the canopy of the branches, which we call a tree well. And if you go into one of those holes, it's very easy to be buried. Um, and in fact. In British Columbia, more people die in tree wells than in avalanches. So we're trained to uh, cope with that situation both as a rescuer, but in my case, more importantly, as a rescuee. So I went headfirst into one of these tree wells and got buried about four feet underground. Um, And I had my, my airways were packed with snow and it was dark. And the first thing that happens, you get an enormous adrenaline rush and your heart rate goes up and there's this urge to breathe. But the thing about that was I knew I couldn't breathe because, first of all, I had snow that was stopping me breathing and that I had to clear that out before I could take a breath. And the other thing I was aware of was with my heart beating so fast, I had to slow myself down so that I didn't burn up the energy and the little oxygen that I had left. And at the same time, I was very trustful that, Uh, those around me were practicing rescue techniques. So long story short was that I was dug out and I was fine. I did uh, get pneumonia for a couple of weeks afterwards because at one stage I had to make the decision to breathe, having cleared most of the smell out of my airways. But uh, that was just the beginning of the journey. It was a strange journey because in one way there's no story. I got buried and I survived. But the other story is the one of... Uh, reliving the situation and allowing and over time that that settling down and then the reaction I had this year when I went back into the same environment uh, and the anxiety that was building up prior to that. So it was a fascinating experience. we talk about metacognition which is the ability to look at the the way you're thinking about things but it was fascinating from that point of view as someone who's aware of psychological impacts to be then analyzing myself in the same situation.
1: Okay so that was definitely a stressful stressful example, an incident and you could apply the similar strategies um, to anyone else dealing with a stressful incident. So the first thing is you were able to talk about it afterwards or talk about the steps of de-stressing that incident that we could apply to a professional setting as well? Yeah. So,
2: the the first thing was, I guess, the shock of surviving. Uh, and I, I, I skied off the mountain and I'd already uh, made the decision that I was going to keep on skiing that day in the same environment in, with the concept of getting back on the horse that had just thrown me right. um, I had uh, wonderful support from my friends. We were staying in a, a small lodge so there was only twelve of us plus the staff there and what was really helpful particularly the following day was uh, both of our hosts had been in similar circumstances and were able to be very empathic. So they didn't downplay what had happened, but they were able to offer their own experiences and 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 let me know that they had survived as well. Uh, so that was helpful. Then when I got back to back home and back to my clinic, I was very fortunate. First of all, I had a respirologist who uh, was in the next uh, hallway. So he was able to make sure there was no sort of uh, ongoing physical consequence and I was grateful for that even though my uh, uh, oxygen levels in my blood were down for about three weeks afterwards. But I was able to talk to my friends and 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 particularly I was fortunate and I had access to one of my colleagues who's uh, a social worker and counsellor and so uh, we were able to talk about things and, and uh, that was just helpful. It was not that I needed a lot of sort of formalized therapy, but it was really just the process of being able to retell the experience um, was helpful. Uh, and and so, sorry, sorry?
1: In retelling the experience, did you find yourself retelling the story more than once?
2: I've told the story many times, and <laughs> obviously, I'm continuing to tell it, but retelling it is is helpful because it enables me to sometimes think about different ways it's affected me. And once I'm aware, then, you know, I can make decisions about how I'm going to deal with that. So, you know one of the decisions I made was I was very, my friends were very supportive, and they said we'd be totally understanding if you never want to come skiing in that environment again, but we were able to talk about it, and then I was felt confident I'd try it out. you know I wasn't going to expose myself fully, but I said, no, I'll come on the trip next time and i'll I'll just go up on the first day, see how I am, and if I'm totally comfortable, I'll keep on going if I'm not comfortable i'll stop and so I had that validation that that I was going to be supported with them no matter what happened on the, the trip this year. So that was helpful. I've been able to rethink it about in terms of that I've survived and I've gone through a number of interesting experiences because I've survived. For instance, when I, I hear about people being killed in a similar circumstance, uh, it, it, it upsets me because knowing that I could have been in that same circumstance. But on the other hand... Um, I'm not in that circumstance. So that is another way of bringing the level of stress down, to know that, hang on, we're all trained, I survived, it's unlikely to happen again because it was a random equipment failure. And and so retelling it and rethinking like that enables me to put it into perspective and to, to help me uh, deciding to move on.
1: Okay. And w- when you said you went back skiing, so would you say that uh, the exposure <laughs> – to the ski hill and skiing helped to destimulate that critical incident
2: it did it was i was getting more and more anxious as we were driving but once we got into the valley we went skiing and it was just a beautiful day and the The snow was on on the mountains, and I could see the the water in the streams. I actually became very excited again, and mm-hmm. I found that very reassuring because it meant that I still did have that that love and excitement associated with that activity and that environment, uh, which was, if you like, overwhelming the negative aspects. So I found that very uh, very comforting, and then. Once I actually got back into the the environment, there was just not an issue. So that I was tired, um, and it gets confusing. Then I was getting, I was fatiguing, and was I fatiguing because I was still short of breath, because I was anxious, just because I was out of condition, or or whatever. I'm not sure, but that improved as the time went by. So the only hiccup was on our second night there. We heard that somebody in a uh, nearby had been killed in a tree well, and. Uh, that was brought back a lot of memories, but only lasted a short time. I was able to ski the following day, and I was pretty uh, uh, upset. But I kept on going, and the benefit was: have gone through this experience was not only to me as it turned out, but it was to the rest of the the crew we went skiing with because. In that environment, skiing is a team sport and we're acting much more as a cohesive team. We're staying closer to the lines. We're looking out for each other better. When there are incidents, Mm. we're recovering quicker. And the final outcome was that we were skiing an extra run every day um, because of my experience and how that had helped pull everyone together again. So that was an unexpected and happy consequence. And again, that's one of the things that, you know, helps me and and going through a similar process may help others to put uh, uh, stressful incidents into perspective and help them to move forwards.
1: It's regaining that optimism. Mm -hmm. Like putting it into perspective is reframing it, such as, oh, this is what I learned from this and these are the benefits of the experience. So it's not all so negative.
2: No, that's really right. And then one of the... uh, uh, There was an interesting saying, and I don't know whether I should bring it up now, by Salman Rushdie. Oh, Uh, yes, yeah. In relation to that. He said because what he said, and he was talking about his experience at the time when he had the fatwa declared against him, he said, those who do not have power over the story that dominates their lives, the power to retell it, rethink it, deconstruct it, joke about it, and change it as times change, truly are powerless because they cannot think new thoughts. And it makes me think that a lot of people who are stuck in this situation haven't gone through that progression of retelling, rethinking, deconstructing, finding humor and changing it. And for me it was an interesting thing because the one thing I thought was I would never find humor in it. But in the end I was and it was uh, one of my daughters who brought that about quite unexpectedly because – My children all live in Australia, and and the girls live in Sydney, and the boys live in Melbourne. And we told the girls about my experience, but hadn't got around to telling the boys. And then one of our sons went up to Sydney, and the first dinner, you can see how it goes. Uh, One daughter goes, well, isn't it good that Owen's survived? And they go, and, and my son goes, survive? Survive what? Well, being buried alive. Buried alive? What do you mean he was buried alive? And this conversation went on and on, and uh, and then I got all these urgent texts. But in the end, everyone was happy once they'd spoken about it. But I found that in not being able to find humour in it, I suddenly thought about this story. And it does have a humorous aspect to it. And that has been immensely helpful uh, in my recovery, if you like. And uh, uh, I'm very grateful to my daughter, Claire, for uh, having uh, provided me with with the humor that's completed that cycle for me.
1: Yeah, so she was a catalyst to bring that about, hey? Yeah. Now, would you say that uh, retelling the story or confronting the incident uh, was re-traumatizing?
2: For me, in this circumstances, I don't think it it was particularly traumatizing, but we certainly know um, that that trauma can be cumulative, and we know that, for instance, children who uh, experienced uh, traumatic events growing up are much more liable to uh, having psychological problems uh, further down the track. We know that that for instance, particularly the the first responders who have repetitive exposure to traumatic uh, uh, incidents uh, uh, burn out and become depressed and have high rates of post-traumatic stress disorders. And and that's something that's particularly a problem in British Columbia at the moment where paramedics are confronted by overdose deaths on a daily basis. And the fortunate thing about that is that their leadership has recognised this as a problem and recognises that they have to protect uh, their workers and as a result of that have put in programmes to help prevent people becoming overwhelmed um, <clears throat> by their experiences. And really this has been shown to work in a number of different uh, contexts including the uh, the hospital context. Um, but one of the things that's been very important that is that these interventions... Uh, recognise as being important and one of the ways of recognizing that is for the workers to be paid to attend. This is not something that uh-huh. you know you have an option about doing or not, but this is something that the uh, the leaders or their employers are putting dollars behind because in the end not only is it about their workers' health and productivity but it's it 's also about maintaining a service. One of the big problems that we have, I think, amongst first responders, amongst uh, nursing staff, amongst medical staff, is that people in these uh, environments ultimately tend to um, move on quicker. I mean, you lose experience because... Uh, People are no longer finding satisfaction or even worse, being overly stressed because of their work. And so it's very important to to develop this uh, work culture that supports people in these situations where you know they're going to be, as part of their job, is going to be uh, exposed to stress. So there are two issues that we need to look at when we talk about these reactions to trauma. One is how does the individual cope? themselves when exposed to trauma and how does the system if you like recognize uh, trauma and and change that aspect of the environment in order to help the workers and so that's something that uh, uh, I'm very interested in too. Of course the difficulty is, is when you get burnt out trying to change the system <laughs> So you have to have resilience to be able to fight the system in order to bring about change that is going to uh, uh, cause less stress for everybody else. Um, And I think the other thing that's important is the development of mentorship programs so that – for instance, our medical students or residents have someone senior that they know that they can feel safe talking to about their problems, who's not going to judge them, who's not uh, and is going to assist them. And that works very well because it breaks down the barriers between, if you like, the generation of workers, but it also um, breaks down this um uh, the old school idea of, you know, sort of put up and shut up with uh, the circumstances because, you know, you decided that you were going to expose these, so you have to accept the consequences. And now we realize that's not a, a reasonable way to uh, live a life.
1: So it's, it's critical then to already have a support system in place for those that need to debrief daily or debrief critical incidents and also to encourage um, colleagues to be vulnerable and open up and build that bond, almost like a, an in-house support system where they can have that trust and and speak openly, like you said, and not be judged. Um, we're going to take um, a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about PTSD and how we can reframe um, the incidents that you had mentioned. Okay. Okay. Stay fine. tuned. Change succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com.
0: Visit Ezrina.ca for information about counseling and body healing services. Ezrina is a master's therapeutic counselor registered with the Association of Cooperative Counseling Therapists of Canada. She has 10 years of counseling experience. She will work both in her office as well as via Skype, or will travel to your area through her workshops. You can even schedule a session online. These sessions are one hour or 90 minutes long. Visit ezrena.ca. Again, that's ezrena.ca. Ezrena Rose Scott conducts several workshops every year, and she can bring them to you wherever you are. Visit ezrena.ca or call 250-212-5596 for more information. Ezrina is an Access Consciousness Practitioner. Her popular workshops include Access Consciousness, The Bars, as well as workshops on money, body, and relationships. Ezrina's workshops can help you get unstuck and move forward in your life. Find out more or bring a friend along. Visit Ezrina.ca for more information or call 250-212-5596.
1: Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment.
0: You are listening to Trauma Talk with Ezrina Rose Scott. To reach our program today, you may call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. If you'd rather send an email, you can send it to Ezrina at Esrena.ca. Now, let's return to Trauma Talk.
1: So, Dr. Williamson, can you illuminate some of the main indicators of PTSD that show up in the healthcare professionals? Yes, there are
2: a number of them. PTSD is actually defined as a mental health disorder, so it has a number of quite specific criterion for the diagnosis, but there are also other symptoms, if you like, that that indicate the possibility that somebody may uh, have PTSD, but the most common things are is first of all having exposure to a threat, um, and whether that's the person themselves being exposed or, if you like, the uh, the first responders being exposed, uh, it doesn't really matter because either of those groups uh, can uh, develop PTSD. Perhaps one of the hallmarks is replaying the incident in your mind to the extent where it starts to interfere uh, with your ability to uh, think about other things. And so we call these intrusive thoughts. Uh, People tend to become hypervigilant. So what they'll do is that they'll uh, react more to uh, a particular incident out of proportion to it. So, for instance, you know, the classic example is the uh, uh, the military personnel that have returned from overseas where they've been ex- uh, exposed to gunfire mm-hmm. and then they hear a car backfiring as it goes down the street and they immediately react with the same visceral reaction that they had when they were being shot at. And, and the so these are, the thing- oh, yeah, these are the things like being short of breath, uh, you know, palpitations, um uh, you know, being distracted, being hyper aware of lights and sounds and feelings around them. Uh, and the other part of it is avoiding things, so avoiding situations where that may have triggered or or be similar to the events that triggered uh, triggered the uh, original stressful event. So the commonest one I have amongst uh, my patients is people who have been involved in a motor vehicle accident have de- developed PTSD, and one of the signs that they get, or the things they report at least, is that uh, they either can't drive past the. Uh, the site of their previous accident,
1: right?
2: Uh, or they feel un- and that's that's at one stage, or or they just feel uncomfortable if they're in a car, or they can't be in a car, or they can't be a passenger in a car, or they can't be a driver in the car. So, uh, to and and again, there's this mismatch because the chance of them being seriously injured whilst being a passenger in a car a second time it can occur, but the visceral reaction, if you like, is. Uh, beyond what one would expect, given the small chance that will happen, and then there can be the associated uh, uh, mood disorders um, of anxiety and depression. Uh, but really it's this alteration. it's the intrusion of the thoughts, it's the uh, the flashbacks, the nightmares. The, the arousal uh, or hypervigilance so that people are on the lookout for danger even when it's not there. And mm. the most important thing about the diagnosis then there, if you like, as signs and symptoms is how intrusive is on the rest of your life. You know, is it impairing your ability to, to uh, do your normal activities? Is it impairing your ability to interact socially? Uh, is it impairing your ability to work? And so they're the things that uh, we look out for in people with PTSD.
1: I find that some some people they're so exceptional at compartmentalizing, they're so contained that they don't even recognize that PTSD is is happening. What do you what do you say to that?
2: Look, I think there are some people who have some form of natural resilience, if you like, who uh, are not affected. Uh, to the same degree by some of these uh, traumatic events. Uh, And on the other hand, at the other end of the spectrum, there are people who are seriously impaired um, by what others might regard as trivial events. The actual feeling and the actual... uh, disability or handicap this, this creates in their lives is, is the same. It's like some people say, well, I've got severe pain, but I get on with my, my activities other people can't. Um, so there is that individual variation, and I guess that in a way, uh, we need to do more research on what makes people resilient Mm-hmm. in these circumstances. I mean, all the research we do up until recently has been focused on the problems that the people who are suffering have without actually looking at what is it that we can bottle out of these resilient people that would uh, help us um, build resilience, you know, at a community level, for instance, so that we reduce the risk of someone developing PTSD after a traumatic incident.
1: mm mm-hmm. So... Let's talk about some stress reduction techniques that can help prevent the development of PTSD and burnout. Sure,
2: so a lot of them are really uh, I, I think part of it is recognising early signs. so I think that teaching people about you know what's happening to them when they're losing enthusiasm, when they're losing sleep, when they're feeling anxious or stressed all the time, when they're they're starting to lose connection with others. Um, and this is particularly in burnout amongst physicians, where physicians stop seeing the humanity in their patients and just start treating them as another object coming through their office. Um, and then there are the you know the changes in habits, so becoming less connected, you know, physically and emotionally with others. They're all uh, all really important. So early detection is important, and then learning uh, some of the strategies, and and a lot of the ones that are being done at the moment are. To do with uh, improving self-awareness, so that you're more aware when these things are starting to happen, and then mm. intervening early yourself through relaxation techniques. And some some relaxation techniques can obviously be things like uh, uh, deep breathing. Others will use meditation. Some people will just listen to calming music so a lot of people have different techniques which may or may not be formalized but then there are formalized programs as well which are uh, particularly with PTSD are associated with uh, desensitizing someone or you know sort of uh, exposing someone to similar but less uh, threatening um, incidents teaching, uh, relaxation techniques, um, you know, desensitizing is, is an important one. And then also really building up their uh, confidence or ability to look after themselves and the ability to take over their own lives again. And so we talk about things like, you know, supporting self-efficacy or developing autonomy as, as, as techniques. And then there are... You know paying attention to the the previous experience and and talking about it so that with time the emotional component of it um, uh, diminishes. Um, and then there can be other specific interventions you know aimed at treating uh, the associated uh, correlates such as anxiety, depression, and uh, substance and alcohol abuse.
1: Yeah, those are the maladaptive coping mechanisms, yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. And you had mentioned a little bit earlier in the episode how you can reframe the incident. Um, tell us a little bit more about that. You said retell, rethink, deconstruct, find humor, and change. So, yeah, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah,
2: um, we understand and we explain that you have uh, been subjected to this uh, intense incident about and that you fell in this now. But you know, we can reframe it's like, oh my God, I, I got buried, I almost died. And go uh I got buried, I survived because I was trained to do it. And my colleagues were trained to do it. And even in the worst circumstances we had control. And I think that part of the reframing is retelling the story so someone Regains control of the story so that it's not dominating them. Wow, good point. It is being part of them, but at the same time, not allowing it to dominate. And it's like we'll tell, talk to our patients, and we'll say, "Well, hang on. There's you've got an anxiety part of your brain. It's only a little part, but at the moment, it's being very loud. And what we need, and it's overwhelming the rest of your non-anxious brain. So all we need to do is." Let your non-anxious brain recognize the anxious brain is making too much noise and tell it to quieten it down. And so part of it is education. If you explain symptoms to people, that enables them to put it into context or reframe them and they understand what it is and they understand, yeah, this is from what happened before, but that's not happening anymore. You know, I find it very helpful when people tell their stories and you see um uh, little recurrences of behaviour with time. I say, I warn them this is going to happen. I say it's like dropping a uh, a, a pebble in a in a in a lake or a, a rock in a lake. You see the big ripples to start off with, and then as time goes by, the ripples spread out. They become less and less intense until ultimately, you know, as the system has relaxed, they disappear. And I warn people that you're going to have these little ripples in your life. It's not because there's something new going on in your life. This is just an experience from the past. And so it's not only reframing the original experience, but it's also explaining the ongoing ripples.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay. People lose fear of them. So by retelling the story, we can uh, make the ripples calmer.
2: I think so. That's my yeah. simplistic approach. I mean, there may be others, and I'm sure there are lots of others out there amongst your listeners who uh, have a totally different view on this. But um, I found that that's been a helpful one when I talk to my, uh, my friends, my colleagues, and my
1: patients. Okay. So tell us about the next step, rethink and deconstruct. We got a few minutes left on the episode, so let's go there. Rethink and deconstruct.
2: Yeah, again, these are someone Rusty's words, so (laughs) uh, he's much more uh, um, articulate than I am. But I think that pulling it apart so that uh, seeing the individual components of the story and what makes it up enables you to um, tackle it, perhaps, in little parts. So, for instance, if you're burnt out at work and just, oh, my God, I'm burnt out, That doesn't really help. But if you deconstruct it into what is making you feel burnt out, you know, is it something within yourself or is it something within the system? If it's something within yourself, is it because you're, you know, you're not feeling supported, you know, you're anxious, you're depressed or, uh, you know, these are the personal aspects of it? or. Uh, you know, you, you get check checklist for the um, bureaucratic part. Am I doing too much paperwork? Am I spending too much time doing nonproductive work? You know, do I not have the respect of my colleagues? Am I overregulated? So once you break it down into those little pieces, then you can work out which ones you can deal with and which parts uh, someone else has to deal with.
1: Yeah, and it's so, less overwhelming, hey? More yeah, manageable? Yeah. Okay. And then find humor. Find humor.
2: I mean, it's great. I mean, you can – and it's a great way of de-stressing too, just going out with friends and having fun. And programming pleasurable experiences. So despite all I've told you, I like skiing on Mondays and Fridays during the ski season. But even if I'm busy throughout the week, knowing that I've got a pleasurable activity planned for the Friday makes it easier for me to tolerate the less happy events during the week.
1: Okay. And then change, like change – what?
2: Well, change what you can change and then accept what you can't, uh,
1: uh, perhaps.
2: Um, but, you know, it's saying, well, okay, I've had this experience in the backcountry. Uh, uh, I've, I've learned some lessons from it. All our friends have learned some lessons from it. Now we've gone into the backcountry again and we're enjoying it more and getting more out of our experience because of the way we've learned and responded to that particular uh, incident.
1: Okay. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Williamson, for sharing uh, your perspective and your experience and your knowledge. Um, I really appreciate you being on Trauma Talk today. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Bye.
1: And have a great day, everyone.
0: Thank you for listening to Trauma Talk with Ezrina Rose Scott. Be sure to tune in to the program again next Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Until we speak again, make this week your best.